Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Glad to, to be with you again, and I'm sure you're all anxious for Jeff to be back, so it'll be nice next week. So I am often asked the question <clears throat> after I preach, why do you always preach the Old Testament? You know? and, and you guys didn't fail that test either. Most of you have asked that question at one time or another. But yeah, pe- but people will ask. And, and our passage today really kind of serves as an illustration of why do I preach from the Old Testament? Um, there's really kind of a, a threefold reason. One, first, foremost, I would say there's a, a biblical theological reason. And, you know, that comes from like 2 Timothy 3.16. Uh, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. You know, so not the new scriptures, but all scriptures, you know, so all scriptures. So we need to hear from all of these things, not just from Matthew, Mark, and, and all of the epistles, but also from Old Testament narratives, Old Testament prophecy, uh, Old Testament law, you know, so... Uh, that's the biblical kind of theological reason or underpinning of why I do it. Uh, there's also really a practical reason. One is, you know, people have heard a lot of sermons from the New Testament, you know? I mean, unless you're a new believer, if you've been in the church for any period of time, you've heard hundreds of sermons from the, the New Testament. And, and especially if you go to like a, a church that's got master's guys in it, you're going to hear New Testament. I mean, that's just what you're going to hear. So practically, like, I can go into people's churches and preach from Joshua, and most likely they've never heard it before. I mean, it's the exact reason. I'm not going to have to worry about, oh, we just finished that series in James last week, you know. So, and and then also, you know, it it helps people hear new things that they they haven't heard before. And then the third reason is really kind of a, a supplemental teaching opportunity. My, my primary purpose is to teach you what is going on within the, the passage, what's the passage trying to, to teach you. But there's also a supplemental opportunity there where, you know, we've lost the ability or the understanding of how to deal with the Old Testament. You know? And we don't know often what to do with the Old Testament. We'll read through something like looking at today, Israel crosses over the Jordan uh, you know, crosses through the Jordan. They grab a bunch of rocks and make a pile of rocks. And okay, that's great, but what does that have to do with me? And, and, and so, what ends up happening is we mishandle the Old Testament. One, we'll we'll turn it into really a simple morality lesson. You know, we'll look at you know something like this today, and and they'll draw from the first chapter and say, well, you need to be courageous even when it seems like God wants you to do something crazy, right? He wants you to do something crazy like walk through a river. You need to be courageous. You know, it's just some sort of moral lesson, you know. Or we'll turn it into some sort of an allegory. Or or if you're really theologically refined, you may call it a type, you know, and you've heard that before. Adam, you know, is this type of Christ. And, And those are legitimate ones. But then all of a sudden, try and turn everything into it. And so they'll take this passage today and they'll say, oh, the 12 stones are the 12 apostles. And, you know, this is showing that, 
you know, the, the church is being brought into Israel. And look, they make two stacks of rocks. There's a stack in the river, and they do a stack by Gilgal. The stack in the rivers for the church being baptized. And the stack of rocks at Gilgal is for Israel. And they'll turn it into this whole honestly ridiculous allegory, you know, for whatever. You know, and, and so that's not the right way to handle it. Uh, the other way is just really to ignore it other than, okay, it's a historical story. Okay, so it tells us something that happened. And, but it's not really relevant to us, you know, but it's a nice story just to kind of get the history and the background of, uh, of how we got to Christ on the cross, you know. But as far as learning, mm, but those things don't match with a 2 Timothy 3.16, that all things are not just informative, all things are secrets. No, all things are profitable to, to build you into a complete Christian. So then if those first three things are really the wrong way to handle it, what I would put forward is the right way to understand, and not this doesn't go just for the Old Testament. This is Old Testament, New Testament, all of Scripture. When you're interpreting, reading, trying to understand what is it saying, what does it mean, what you need to find is what we would call the author's intent. What did the author intend? I mean, when Joshua, who I would say wrote this, sat down and wrote this, he had a specific intent in writing this, a specific purpose that when people read this, they would gain a certain understanding. And so what was that author's intent? And now scripture, we know that the human authors didn't work alone, right? That they had the Holy Spirit with them. But they didn't work separate from each other. It's not like the, the human authors were writing scripture and then the Holy Spirit's off here doing something else and, and putting secret codes and, and all sorts of things into the Bible. You know, scripture talks about how they worked together. The, the, the human authors and the Holy Spirit worked together with a combined intention to, to write scripture. And so when we read through scripture, we have to ask, what was the author's intent for us to understand from this passage of Scripture. And that's both the human author and the Holy Spirit. What's their intention? Now, some passages are more difficult. Some passages we're going to read through, and it's going to be, man, what was the author's intent in telling us this prophecy, this story? What's going on here? And it's going to be more difficult. Some passages, like this one today, are actually a whole lot easier because the author gives us like a cheat code and he tells you why this is written. And he's gonna tell you, this is the reason this is here. This is what I'm trying to teach you. I'm not trying to teach you about some sort of baptism and some sort of new covenant and some sort of all these other new things. This is my specific intention for you to understand. So that makes it really easy. And so let's go ahead and jump into our passage today. And we're gonna go through Joshua 3 and 4. And chapter three is kind of the, the preparation and going through the Jordan. And then chapter four is going to be setting up this memorial that after they've gone through the Jordan, get over to the other side, that they're going to establish this memorial. And so we'll see that in chapter four. But in chapter three, as they go through the Jordan, let me go ahead and read it for us. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, Then Joshua 
rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way that you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow Yahweh will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priest, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Then Yahweh said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of Yahweh your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of Yahweh, Yahweh of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from the flowing and the water shall come down from above and shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the water coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over the dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So there's something that takes kind of center stage here. The Ark of the Covenant, right? The Ark of Yahweh, your God. And so this Ark kind of takes center place. And it's what the focus is on through this whole chapter. And so what is the Ark of the Covenant? You know, I mean, we have some idea no, it's not Indiana Jones and, you know, that's not the, the Ark of the Covenant, right? The Ark of the Covenant really functioned for Israel as this physical representation, this physical manifestation of Yahweh's presence with Israel. You know, it, it was this uh, chest, this box that they had made, 
And within it, they had the, the law was stored within that. And, you know, there were these cherubim on top. And, and then God's presence, like, resided right over the top of this Ark of the Covenant. And, and so it stood as this representation of, hey, I'm with you. You know, here I am, and I'm going to be with you. I've made this promise to you. And, and so this is really this sign of me being with you. And, you know, for Israel, this Ark of the Covenant symbolized a few things for them. One, it, it symbolized the, the holiness of God, you know, because within it, you had that law that was passed down to them. Uh, you know, it was this reminder, you don't want to touch the thing or you might die, uh, you know, and it was this constant reminder that God has passed down this law that matches him his holiness, his separation, he demands that you follow this law. So it reminded them of that, that holiness. It, it was really this symbol of, you know, God's sovereignty uh, and, and his power, you, you know, that here's this ark and uh, there's going to be, you know, these miracles that kind of take place around it. Uh, you know, it's not just like other gods, you know, idols and things like that. You know, here is this box that God's established. And so it reminded them of this sovereignty and power. And then it also reminded them of his justice too. Because, you know, there was going to be, uh, uh, if you fell short of that law, that you were going to have to pay for that. That there would be judgment for breaking that law. And, and so there was going to be justice uh, that was going to take place, meted out by God. But it also, there was mercy. The top of it, they called that the, the mercy seat. And so, you know, God, yes, he had a law that he established. He was a sovereign God that could enact that law. And he was going to bring justice against those that violated the law. But he also was going to have mercy. And so it really symbolized all these things for them. And so, here comes this ark, and they, they bring this out, and Joshua, God tells Joshua, I, I want you to have this ark lead out in front of everybody and lead them through the Jordan. And then it, it says an interesting thing in verse 4. It says, yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. And so you read that, and you go to commentators, and you say, well, why did they want, you know, this 2,000? Why did they want this distance? And you're going to read all these, you know, explanations and exhortations about how the ark was holy. God was holy, so you needed separation because the people weren't holy. And, you know, you didn't want to accidentally touch the thing. And so they wanted this, you know, separation. But that's not right. I mean, that's not the reason that God says, I want you to have 2,000 cubits in length between the ark and the people. All you have to do is you keep reading, and he says, continuing in verse 4, do not come near it. Why? In order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. So it's not because I'm holy, so you need to get away from me. You need to be separated from me. You don't want to get near this because it's too holy for you to even look or touch at. No. He, it's a practical reason. He wants it out there so that the entire nation can see this thing. And, and you can just imagine the, you know, you've been 
in large crowds of people. If you're in a large crowd of people and you're right next to something, it's hard for everybody in the crowd to see it. And so you get away. It's like going to a football game. If you're sitting on the sidelines, yeah, you see what's going on right in front of you, but you, you don't see the entire thing, the entire picture, but you get further back, you can see everything that's going on. So God practically says, I want you to be away and separated because I want you as a nation following after me. The ark as this physical representation, this reminder to you of Yahweh, I want you to understand that that is who you are following. I want you to be far enough back to see it. I want you to see the miracle that takes place. I don't want you to miss it. Did you see what happened? No, I wasn't paying attention. You know, I was dealing with the kids. I didn't see it. Oh, I was too close. I couldn't see it. You know, this big guy was standing in front of me. No, he wants everybody to see what takes place. I want you to be following after me because you haven't been this way before. You don't know where you're going. I'm leading you. Don't ever forget this, Israel. You know, you wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. You couldn't even find yourself out of a desert. Follow after me, and I'm going to direct you. And so he brings them through the Jordan. And this is really like a, a redo of the Red Sea. You know, you go back the first time, he brings them out of slavery, brings them through the Red Sea, passes down the law to them, gives them the law, and then goes to the, enter the promised land, and they don't do it. And they rebel against him, and they choose not to. So he goes, wanders in the wilderness, and essentially God does a wash, rinse, repeat. That generation dies off. Now the new generation comes. He establishes a leader, Joshua, just like he did with Moses. He brings them out of uh, wandering in the wilderness. He's going to bring them through the Jordan. They're going to get through the Jordan. The next time I'm with you guys, we'll go through chapter 5, and you're going to see this reminder of the law, this reestablishment of the law through circumcision. And then they go and conquer the land this time. And so this is really just a, a repeat, a redo of what happened at the Red Sea and what happened when they received the law and, are, and a reminder of that. And so they go through, go through the river into the promised land that God had uh, given them a covenant that I'm going to give you this land through that Abrahamic covenant. And so... In, as we go into chapter four, he gets to this point where he wants to lay down these stones, these memorial stones. And at the beginning, he says, when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, Yahweh said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe of man, and command them saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priests feet stood firmly and bring them over with you. And if you go down and you see later on, he'll say um, in, sorry, in verse six, I'm sorry, verse nine, and Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan 
in the place where the feet of the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant stood. And they are there to this day. So this is like a Hebrew mistranslation that ends up into the English. What it says in the Hebrew is more like, and Joshua set up 12 stones that came out of the midst of the Jordan. So it's not that he set them up within the Jordan, because why would Joshua set up stones within the Jordan? You know, God tells him, I want you to get stones out of the Jordan and set them up at Gilgal. We got to go back to chapter one again. How did God tell Joshua to manage the people? To listen to his word, do what he says, don't turn to the left, don't turn to the right. Don't go and do extra stuff. You know, don't make the same mistake they did before. Listen to what I tell you and do what I tell you. So God tells them, take stones from the river, bring them out, set them up in Gilgal. So why would then Joshua go set up more stones inside the river? Why would he set up two stones or sets of stones? And who's looking at a set of stones inside the river? Well, what does that do for anybody? So in the Hebrew, it says, really, he pulls these stones out of the midst of the Jordan. So why? What's the purpose of this memorial? What's, what's the point of this? Again, thankfully, the author gives us the cheat code for this, and he tells us why. And he tells us that there's really three reasons why he's going to do this whole bring rocks out of the river and set them up at Gilgal. So the first one, if we look at uh, in chapter 4, verse 5. So I'll start in verse 4. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of Yahweh your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. So the first and foremost reason that the author tells us why are we doing this? So that it would be a sign to you. You know, Israel, I want you to remember what took place here. You know, don't forget what's happening. I want you to remember this. And by association, I want you to remember the Red Sea. And I want you to remember being enslaved in Egypt. And I want you to remember being brought out of Egypt through the Passover. I want you to remember all the way back to Abraham's covenant. You know, so this stands as a sign to them of the promise that God made to them and how he enacted it. And so when they think back, they're going to remember, we went through the Jordan. You don't walk through a river. I mean, you may go over a river, you may wade through a river, but a river doesn't dry up. I mean, this is a miraculous thing. The ark goes into the river, the water stops, it piles up in a heap, and they cross over on dry ground. And so these stones are set up to be a reminder to Israel of what took place at the Jordan. Second, he continues in verse 6, that this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask in a time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones 
shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as Yahweh had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst, out of the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. For the priest bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that Yahweh commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of Yahweh and the priests of the pe- uh, passed over the people. The sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, half the tribe of Manasseh, passed over, armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before Yahweh for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, Yahweh exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And Yahweh said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of Yahweh came up from the midst of the Jordan, the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground. The waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. So one, it was assigned to Israel. Two, it was to be a teaching lesson. It was there to to draw the question, what's with the pile of rocks, dad? Like, why? What's the big deal about the pile of rocks? This is the same purpose for the monuments we have in D.C. now, right? As a reminder for what these people did, as a way for kids to ask, what's with the the pencil? What's with the Washington Monument? What's that all about? Well, let me tell you a story. It's the same thing. Dad, what's with the pile of rocks at Gilgal? You know, because don't picture this as like a bunch of little rocks, right? I mean, this isn't like they, they set up like this cutesy little... Instagram like pile of rocks, right? I mean, this is like a pile of rocks. Like they lift them up and are having to carry these things on their shoulders, right? And so they've got these 100, 200 pound rocks that they bring out and they set up this huge monument. And so it's a reminder, both to Israel, don't let your children, your next generation forget about what happened here, because this is important. Why is this important? Because I'm bringing you into the promised land. Number one, you guys didn't conquer the promised land. You you couldn't even get across the river on your own. I brought you through the river. I'm gonna conquer the first city for you. 
You know, I did this for you to fulfill the covenantal promise that I made to your fathers. So I want you to tell your children. I want them to know what took place here. I want them to see that glory, that majesty, that providential care that I had for Israel. And I want them to understand that. And so one, assigned Israel. Two, to cause the future generation to ask questions, to be able to provide instructions to them. And then last, it says, verse 23, for Yahweh, your God, dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as Yahweh, your God, did to the Red Sea. And this is why I would say that it's a redo of the Red Sea, because the author says it, which he dried up for us until we passed over. Why? So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of Yahweh is mighty and that you may fear Yahweh, your God, forever. So here, it goes out beyond just Israel. Israel, I want you to know. I want your future generations to know. But even beyond that, Israel, I want the entire world to know. I want the entire world to question what happened here? What took place here? Oh, well, let me tell you a story. You see Yahweh. Well, wait a minute. Who's Yahweh? Let me tell you about Yahweh. You know, so here it is as a testimony to the entire world of what took place. And, and I mean, you ever wonder why did he go to Jericho first? Why did, why did they enter at this place? You know, God chooses one of the most powerful cities, one of those trade centers of the world, so that that word would spread out to the rest of the world. You know, I mean, he wasn't just dealing with Israel, but God is trying to have an impact and having an impact on the entire world. And then this echoes down through history to us today. So you ask, what am I supposed to learn from chapters three and four of Joshua? What does that mean in my Christian walk? This is what it means in your Christian walk, that you need to understand that Yahweh, your God that you worship, that sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you, that Yahweh dried up the waters of the Jordan for Israel so that they could pass over, so that he could fulfill his covenantal promise to them, even though they failed him and they would continue to fail him and they would continue to rebel against him and they would continue to sin. He remained faithful and fulfilled his promises to them. And that you understand that he's mightier than any army. He's mightier than any nation. He's mightier than any individual. He's the one that stops water, that rises people from the dead, that has control over feast, over famine, over the sun, over darkness, over the weather, over all of creation. That Yahweh is mighty. And we should fear that Yahweh because the same one that represented himself with Israel in the Ark of the Covenant, in that holiness, sovereignty, justice, and mercy is still the same Yahweh that we worship today.
And we look to him for the same thing. We look to him and understand his holiness, and we try and bring that holiness into our lives. We call that sanctification. We understand his providential sovereignty over our lives, and so we seek to do his will, to understand his word and his instructions to us. We understand that he is going to met out justice. And so then when we see the world burning down around us and, and we see our churches falling apart, we see our pastors disqualifying themselves, marriages breaking up, and we can say, this is a tragedy, but it's not lost. It's not out of God's control. God is still in control. And he's going to bring mercy. And he's already made that offer of mercy to us. And that offer of mercy came through Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ came, he spent time teaching. He spent time showing his holiness by not living a life with sin. He spent time showing his providential sovereignty over nature, over death, over illness, over the spiritual world. He showed his ability to bring justice into situations. And then shortly before he enacted his work on the cross to bring mercy, he sat down with his disciples to introduce communion, the Last Supper, which stands not as something that brings you grace, not as something that brings you holiness, not as something that does some sort of spiritual mojo within your life, but rather it stands as a memorial. If we go and you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in verse 23, Jesus, it says, for I received from the Lord with what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread and drink the cup, or eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. God, why are we setting up a, a pile of rocks in Gilgal? Because I want you to remember. I want your children to see it. And I want you to proclaim what I've done to the world. God, why do we drink juice and bread? Because I want you to remember what I did in your life. I want it to be there so that your kids will ask, why do we do this, Dad, Mom? And then also so that you proclaim the Lord's death to the world until he comes. It's not a straight analogy, but this is how God operates. He sets up remembrances because as humans, man, we forget, right? We forget where our car keys are. We forget where we parked the car. We forget all sorts of stuff. And God says certain things are too important for you to forget or to get sidetracked by. So I want you to remember Israel when I brought you into the land that I had promised you, when I started to fulfill my promised covenant to you. Christians 
I want you to do this, eat this bread, drink this juice, because I don't want you to forget the sacrifice that I made for you, the mercy that I brought to you to make you holy positionally, to make you holy practically through sanctification, to adopt you into a family that you are separated from, to take you from being an enemy of God to a, a son or daughter of God, to bring you from being a dead person to being one that's alive. All of those things that are promised within the new covenant. And so that's why we do communion. This is why he brought them through the Jordan so that they wouldn't start to think, oh, I, we did this. This was us. That there was no doubt. Man, we stood back. We had nothing to do with it. We saw the ark go in. The water stopped. The ark, the presence of God, stopped the water for us. The presence of God led us into the promised land. The presence of God is then going to bring down the walls of the most powerful city in the known world at the time. It's all God. And I want you to remember this. And so set up these rocks so that you don't forget. Because people forget. And it's the same thing with communion. We do this not as some sort of mystical thing for us, but rather for us to remember. Where did we start and where did we end? What are we telling people about? Look at what God did for me. Let me proclaim that death of the Lord. We close this in prayer. Dear Lord, we are grateful that you are a covenant-making God and that you have the power and the authority, the ability to keep those promises. Unlike us where we stumble and fail and falter and so often need your help and your forgiveness and your patience and kindness. We know that no matter what takes place, no matter how bad the outlook can be, that ultimately at the end of the day, at the end of this world, that you will still be in power, that your will is going to be worked out. As we get ready to do communion, I, I pray that you would help us to remember the sacrifice that was made for us, the entire reason of why we gather together, why we study your word, why we sing to you, why we pray. That when we were sinners, you sent your son to be that sacrifice to bring us into your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.